Good morning. I'd like you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Many people have questions about the whole area of the gifts of tongues. Some of those are answered in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 by the Apostle Paul. Last week we saw in the first 19 verses that he answered the question, Who, how would you rate the gift of tongues in relation to other gifts? And his answer is that it's secondary. It's a lesser gift because it can't edify the body, verses 1 to 5. It can't communicate, verses 6 to 12. And it's emotional rather than mental, verses 13 to 19. And he concludes in verse 19 by saying that I would rather speak five words with my understanding than 10,000 words in a language, a foreign language, that you can't understand and I can't understand. And then this morning we're going to look at verses 20 to 25 where Paul answers the question, what is the purpose of the gift of tongues? And notice how he begins in verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Do not be children in your thinking. That's a great exhortation. Grow up. Now the question is, why does he say that here? What's he mean by being children? What's he mean by being childish? Well, what is the context? He's talking in chapters 12 to 14 about spiritual gifts. He's particularly talking in this 14th chapter comparing prophecy with the gift of tongues. And so the question is, how can I be childish in relation to spiritual gifts? And I thought of at least three things you could add to this list. The first thing I thought of is that you can be childish by desiring emotion over mind. The gift of tongues was a popular one in Corinth. It was popular because it was showy, it was ecstatic. It didn't require the use of your mind. Remember verse 14? For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. My mind is dormant. When someone used the gift of tongues, it came through their spirit. It did not come through or did not even travel through their mind. That sounds like a pretty good gift to me. I got, you know, prophecy, on the other hand, you've got to use your mind. The, the gift of proclaiming the Word of God, I have to use my mind all the time. That's one of my downfalls. I study a lot. I come up here with notes because I have to use my mind to present the truth of God's Word. Gift of tongues is kind of attractive because you just it comes through your spirit, doesn't involve your mind. You just kind of tune out your understanding and have an existential experience. That sounds pretty good. So Paul says in verse 20, do not be children in your thinking. In your thinking, be mature. What's he saying? Focus on the gifts that involve your thinking. Not that gift that doesn't use your mind at all. Now I have to say that it's very appealing to think that I can vault ahead spiritually by means of an experience. It's very appealing to think that I can vault ahead spiritually 
without engaging my mind. But that is childish thinking. Most oftentimes in Scripture, the Christian life is described as a walk. We're not told to leap. We're not told to jump. We're not told to fly. We are told to walk. What is a walk? A walk is a steady, daily process. You were told as a Christian to grow. How do you grow? It's a very gradual process. I look at your kids, I don't see them growing. But sometimes I turn around and I look back and they've grown two inches. Because it's a gradual process. That's the way the Christian life is. And the Christian life involves your mind. That's why Romans 12.2 says, we are to be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Now, don't get me wrong. I want you to have experiences with God. I would love for you to have the experience Jacob had when he wrestled with God. And as a result of that, he never walked the same again. I would love for you to have the experience that Saul had on the Damascus Road where he was transformed from Saul to Paul and never was Saul again. But most of the Christian life is gradual and methodical and it requires discipline and it requires your mind. And so when I want to tune out the mind and just get emotional, Paul says that is being childish. You say, well, Dan, what about Romans chapter 8? Verses 26 and 27. Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because let's go back and look at that. Romans chapter 8. Verse 26. It says, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness... For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's a great encouragement to me. When I don't know how to pray, the Spirit helps my weakness and He intercedes for me And he communicates his mind when my mind can't comprehend. And I think some people have this experience described in Romans chapter 8, and they call it the gift of tongues. This is not tongues. Tongues is a gift for some. Romans chapter 8 is a promise for all. Tongues is languages. Romans chapter 8 is groanings too deep for words. Romans chapter 8 is not a way to grow. It's a a compensation for those who haven't grown. It's not for the strong. He says it's for the weak. It's not the norm. It's an exception. It's not for the mature. It's for the immature. So yes, this happens sometimes. When I don't know how to use my mind, God comes in and helps me out in that in my weakness. But the focus of a Christian is that I should be focusing on the mind rather than the emotion. 
And so when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that we're not to be children, I think the first element of that is that it's desiring emotion over mind. Secondly, I would say that it's desiring the lesser gift over the greater gift. Paul's whole point in the first 19 verses is that prophecy is greater than tongues. It's summed up in verse 5 of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians when he says, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues. And that's why he says in verse 1, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And then he says, for the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Desire the greater gifts. Which ones are those? Prophecy. Tongues being the lesser gift. When you're a child, that means you're desiring the lesser gift rather than the greater gift. My granddaughter, Chrislyn, had her first birthday just before Christmas. We went to her party. She has too many relatives. Got a lot of gifts. But it's interesting to watch her because she does what a one-year-old typically does. They open the gift with a little help from their siblings. And there's the gift. You've paid all these dollars for this child to have, and you're hoping beyond hope that they'll like the gift. And what do they do? They play with the wrapping paper. You know, they're, they're, she's fascinated with the wrapping paper, and you're like, that cost me a lot of money. I'm not going to say how much. But see, a, a child doesn't have that discernment. It wouldn't help me to sit her down and, and talk to her about the value of this gift as opposed to the wrapping paper, because she doesn't have that discernment. It's childish to go for the lesser gift and not the greater gift, and that's Paul's point in this passage. In fact, if you remember back in chapter 13, when we went through there, verse 11 says, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. And in that context, we see that the childish things is spiritual gifts because they are temporal and they are partial. It's childish to focus on spiritual gifts and not to focus on the goal of spiritual gifts, which is love. Well, the most childish thing you could do then is to focus not just on spiritual gifts, but the lesser of all the spiritual gifts rather than the greater of those gifts. And then the third element of childishness in this context would be by desiring self over others. When we have a child, we work hard to try to get their first word to be dada or mama. But there's a word that they learn without any coaching, and that's the word mine. You know, it doesn't take them long before it's mine, mine, mine. And childishness equals selfishness. And one of the reasons that tongues is a lesser gift is because Paul told us that it can only edify the speaker and no one else. And that didn't really bother the people in the church at Corinth because he already told us earlier in, in, in this letter that they were a carnal church, a selfish church. And so their attitude was, I'm going to use this gift in church whether it profits anybody else or not because I like to and it makes me feel good. And so Paul says, don't be children 
grow up. In fact, he says, the only area I want you to be childlike is in relation to evil. If you're going to be a baby, be a baby in relation to evil. Desire the lesser things there rather than the greater things. But when it comes to your understanding, be men, be mature. Now let me clarify this. Spirit without understanding is childish. But he's not saying that I want you to seek understanding without spirit. Some of us have a tendency to go to the other extreme. We think everything should be intellectual. Everything should be mental. And if we see somebody with a little enthusiasm, we say they're being childish. Somebody gets excited, they're immature. No. Jesus said in John 4 that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Those two things in balance. And that's Paul's point here. Look at verse 15. He says, what is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the mind also. You see, true worship engages both my mind and my spirit. True maturity involves my mind and my spirit. I don't see how you can have not have both. I don't see how mentally you can say, you know what, I know that Jesus died for me. I know as a result of that that I am forgiven of all my sins. I know that He has given me His righteousness. I know that I have eternal life. I know I will live forever with Him in heaven and not be excited about that. I, I don't see how that works. I, that, that to me is mental that never gets to your spirit. And when mental never gets to your spirit, it's a problem. Because the Bible says that knowledge does what? It puffs up. It's got to be the combination of both. And so as we worship the Lord, it's in spirit and in truth. Both of those. And so as he calls these people childish because they were focused on emotion rather than mind, don't go to the other extreme. Mind and no emotion. It's to be the balance of the two. That's the way God made us. And that's the way God wants us to walk and worship. You say, well, Dan, I'm confused. If tongues is a lesser gift that has no profit in the church, what is its purpose? Well, look at verse 21. He says, in the law... It is written. Now, when he refers to the law, he's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the Old Testament. In the law, it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. I'm going to speak to this people by strange tongues, and they will not listen. Verse 22, so then tongues are for a sign. A sign to who? A sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Who are the unbelievers? He just told us in verse 21. It's this people that will not listen. That's Israel. Now, verse 21 is a quote from Isaiah 28. 
verses 11 and 12. And I want you to go back there for a moment. Isaiah 28. Pretty easy to find. It's a big book right in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah 28. And the context of this chapter is it's in the southern kingdom of Judah in the reign of King Hezekiah. It's about the year 705 B.C. About 17 years earlier, the northern kingdom had been destroyed by the Assyrians because of unbelief and apostasy. And now the southern kingdom is behaving in exactly the same manner. And so God speaks through Isaiah to tell them that the same thing that happened to the northern kingdom was going to happen to the southern kingdom. The only difference being it wasn't going to be the Assyrians now, it was going to be the Babylonians. And he says that in verse first 15 verses of Isaiah 28. I want you to get the context. Look at verse 7. He says, And these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel while making visions. They totter while rendering judgment. The leaders are drunk. They're actually preaching drunk, is what he's saying. And then notice verse 8. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. That's picturesque. This is a drunken, vomit-filled party. And in this setting, Isaiah brings his message of judgment. And how does Israel respond? Notice verse 9. They mock him. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? Who's he ever going to teach? Babies? For he says, verse 10, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. He thinks we're babies because he keeps repeating the same simple message over and over again. And this verse in Hebrew sounds like this. Sav lasav, sav lasav, kav lakav, kav lakav, zier sham, zier sham. It's like a nursery rhyme. He comes and all he preaches is the same simple message to us. And so here's God's response, verse 11. Indeed, He will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. God says, if you're not going to hear the simple, childlike message that I have for you, then I'm going to bring you a message that's going to be in a language that you can't understand at all. And then verse 12. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. God said, here's rest, here's refreshment, but you would not listen. So, verse 13, the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. God's going to give you that basic message. What you're going to hear is goo, 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 goo. And what's the result? The end of verse 13, Israel will stumble backwards, be broken, snared, and taken captive. That happened in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came into Judah and destroyed and looted and burned. And what was the sign that that destruction was coming? The babbling Babylonians. They heard a foreign language 
And that was the sign that judgment was upon them. You can go back to Deuteronomy 28.49. In Moses' time, and the same promise is made, when you hear a foreign language, judgment is coming. You can go to the time of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 5.15. Same message. When you hear a foreign tongue that you can't understand, you will know that judgment is upon you. You see, a foreign language was a sign to Israel of judgment. It was true in Moses' time. It was true in Isaiah's time. It was true in Jeremiah's time. And what did it mean in Paul's time? It was the same message. When unbelieving Israel heard the various languages on the day of Pentecost, it stood out to them as a sign of God's judgment. It had two aspects. One was physical because Jerusalem was going to be destroyed in 70 A.D. AD. The other was spiritual because the sign said God isn't any longer going to work through one nation. God isn't any longer going to speak one language. God isn't any longer going to favor one people. He is taking His message out to the Gentiles, out to the world, and these Foreign languages that you hear indicate that God is finished with Israel as that select nation, and He's going to establish the church, which includes people from every nation and every tongue. So what is the purpose of tongues? It's a sign to unbelieving Israel that God was turning to the Gentiles. You say, but Dan, I've always been taught that tongues is for personal devotions. I've always been taught that tongues is a private prayer language. That it's a means to communicate to God in a supernatural way. Well, a lot of people teach that. Donald G., a Pentecostal writer, said the revealed purpose of the gift of tongues is chiefly devotional, and we do well to emphasize that fact. Larry Christensen, a Lutheran writer, says one speaks in tongues for the most part in his private devotions. This is by far its most important use and value. And what they're saying is it's a way to have your devotions. It's a way to edify yourself. It's a way to commune with God in another language that is more meaningful than English or whatever language you speak. And that understanding, I think, comes from Paul's statement in verses 18 and 19 of 1 Corinthians 14, where he says that he spoke in tongues more than anybody else, but not in the church. You say, well, if he spoke in tongues more than anybody else, but not in the church, then where did he speak in tongues? You say, well, I guess he spoke in his closet. That make if he had a closet. That makes sense, right? You know, it's interesting that I can find nowhere in Scripture where the exercise of the gift of tongues was ever a private practice. Every manifestation of tongues is in a public place. It was true on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 
It was true in the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. It was true in the synagogue of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. It was true in the church at Corinth. You see, it's a sign to unbelieving Israel. And it couldn't act as a sign if it was done in private. I love to ski, snow ski. I don't get to do it enough. But when you go snow skiing, signs are very important. You've got all the trails, and they're all designated by signs. You've got the green slope, the blue slope, the black slope. You've got even some signs that just say, don't go here. Stay away. This is danger. Well, those signs are clearly posted. They're very important. When I lived in Denver years ago, I had a friend who had a double black diamond sign in his bedroom. Nice sign. But it really didn't serve a great purpose in his bedroom. You see, for those signs to be important, they had to be in a public place. They had to be communicating to other people. And that's what the gift of, of tongues was for. You say, well, if Paul didn't use it in the church, and if he didn't use it in his closet in private devotions, where did he use this gift? Well, if you read about Paul, when he traveled around and he came to a city, what, where's the first place he went? He went to the synagogue. And the synagogue was set up where they would read the Scriptures and they, they would even invite visitors to get up and talk if they wanted to. That's why Paul went there. He usually got kicked out, but he went there. He got the opportunity to speak. I would think in that context, if he spoke about the great works of God and the glory of God in a foreign language, in tongues, it was a sign to unbelieving Israel that God was no longer just working with them. He was going to the Gentiles. And I think there's possibly another angle to that, although I can't really support this in Scripture, and that is, as he left Israel and went to the Gentiles, it would be kind of nice to know their language. And so there's a miracle in the gift of tongues that he could speak a language he had never learned and could communicate the Word of God to them as well. Also a sign to Israel that God was going to the Gentiles. Last time I went skiing was too long ago, but we drove out there. I hate to drive to Colorado, but as you drive along, you see these signs. It says 300 miles to Denver. You're in the middle of Kansas. Oh, please. 200 miles to Denver. 100 miles to Denver. 30 miles to Denver. Yes. You know, when you get to Denver, you don't have any more of those signs. A, a sign is letting you know that something's coming. When you're already there, when it's come, you don't need the sign anymore. That's the way I see the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues made a lot of sense in the first century when God was starting something altogether new, which was the church. He was starting this new entity, and He was saying to Israel, this is new, and this is going to reach out to the world in all these languages. And it's a sign to Israel that God was bringing judgment on them and moving away from them to the church. Today, 1,900 years later, to say that God is starting something new, to have a sign that says, the church is a new identity. It's different from Israel. It's new and judgment. That's old news. 
And that's why I say that the gift of tongues is not a gift that was even to be prominent in the early church and certainly has really lost its significance as a sign today. Look at verse 22. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Tongues are not set up to be part of the church because they can't edify Christians. They are designed to be assigned to unbelievers. And then he makes the contrast that he's been making throughout this chapter. But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Now, which of these gifts is more important? Well, prophecy. Because its purpose is to minister to believers. Tongues belong primarily outside of the church because it was its purpose was a sign to unbelieving Israel. Now, having said that tongues are for unbelievers and prophecy is for believers, Paul is now going on to illustrate that if tongues are used in the church, in the chaotic way that they were using it in the church at Corinth, not only would tongues not edify believers, but it wouldn't even do its intended purpose, and that is have an effect on unbelievers. Notice how he illustrates that. Look at verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Gather together as a church, everybody speaks in tongues. Now that's not the way the gift of tongues was intended to be used, and Paul is going to explain that next time when we get down to verses 27 and 28. But this is the way they were using it in the church at Corinth. They got together and everybody spoke in tongues. Personally, that's the way I have experienced those who claim to have this gift today. I've been in a group of people or a church, and everybody that I can see is all speaking in tongues at the same time. Paul says, let's assume that's happening, and an unbeliever shows up. What's his response going to be? You're mad. You're nuts what that word means in Greek. You're nuts. This is You're out of your mind. You're, you're crazy. They would run for the door. That's what Paul says. You're all speaking in this gift of tongues. Somebody comes in who's not a believer. He's going to think you're crazy. Now, look at the contrast of that. Verse 24. But if all prophesy, and again, this is not the way that gift was to be used either. And he's going to explain that down in verse 31. But that's the way it happened in the church of Corinth. They were just using their gifts and not thinking about anybody else. They were using them selfishly. But he says, let's assume you're in church and everybody's just talking. And they're proclaiming the Word of God. And an unbeliever shows up. What will be his response? Look at verse 24. But if all prophesy... And an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, 
declaring that God is certainly among you. Wow. He'll be convicted. His sins will be unmasked. He will fall down and worship God and He will say, I recognize that God is among you. Why? Because prophecy is the proclaiming of the Word of God. And that's what the Word of God does. Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the soul. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It lays us bare before God. That's why we have a commitment here to teach the Word of God. Even when we get on a passage like this that's hard to teach and controversial, but it's the Word of God. And the promise is, if you're all speaking in tongues, unbeliever comes in, he's going to run saying you're crazy. If you're all prophesying, proclaiming the Word of God, and he comes in, there's going to be conviction to his heart. He's going to be converted. That's the idea. He's going to turn from an unbeliever to a believer on the basis of the power of God's Word. So what's the purpose of the gift of tongues? It's a sign to unbelieving Israel that God is turning to the Gentiles. Its place was outside the meeting of the church because within the church, it didn't accomplish anything for believers or unbelievers. And in contrast, prophecy, when used in the church, benefited not only believers, which it's primarily designed to do, but it, it even benefits unbelievers who come in. Now, I find this to be a great encouragement this passage. Especially encouraging for a church that elevates and focuses on proclaiming the Word of God. This passage tells me that a church that centers on the gift of tongues doesn't build up believers, doesn't reach unbelievers, and is primarily immature and going to remain there. A church that centers on the gift of prophecy, proclaiming the Word of God, builds up believers, convicts unbelievers, and is growing toward maturity and completion in love. And my prayer for us as a church is that we'll always remember that. And we will always be committed to the proclamation of the Word of God. I'm going to have the praise team come back. We're going to close our service today by responding in worship to the Lord. You've heard the Word of God. Let's fall down and praise Him and proclaim His name and recognize that He's in our midst today as we close our service.